passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Do you guys remember what took place on February 7th last year? Uh, somebody said it. Super Bowl. That was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Does anybody remember the score and who won? Tampa Bay, right? Score, anybody like trivia buff around here? If I'm correct, this is from Googling it, you know, the score was 31 to 9. And Tom Brady won another Super Bowl, the seventh Super Bowl. But when you have something like that and you win a Super Bowl, it's appropriate to celebrate, isn't it? But how do you celebrate in a COVID world when you can't get people together? That was the challenge for the city of Tampa. So what they decided to do was actually have a boat parade down the Hillsdale River. That would give social separation. They thought it would keep everybody safe. And it worked out well in many ways, but it almost was a disaster. Tom Brady, who likes to throw things, and he throws things usually rather accurately, decided he would throw the Vince Lombardi trophy from his boat to another boat where one of his receivers on the team was, was you know, in. Thankfully, it was an accurate pass, and it didn't end up on the bottom of the river. You know, we would never have heard the end of that one. But folks, it's important to celebrate. It's important to celebrate after a victory, and something good has happened in our life. Now, we've been studying through the, the last two weeks. We just began 1 Samuel. And in the beginning of 1 Samuel, we saw a great challenge, and we also saw a great victory. The beginning of 1 Samuel tells us Hannah's story. Hannah was a, a barren woman who could not bear a son for her husband named Elkanah. In fact, it was such a desperate situation that Elkanah married a second wife just to bear him children. This woman's name was Peniah, and she was very fruitful. You remember, she bore many children to Elkanah, but Peniah made it her mission in life, not just to bear children for Elkanah, but to ruin Hannah's world to get under that barren woman's skin and just irritate her, mock her, deride her, just do everything he could, she could to ruin her marriage. In desperation, we saw that Hannah went to the tabernacle and there she prayed to God and said, God, if you would just give me a son, I will give him to you for the rest of his life. I will dedicate him to you. And God heard her prayer and God answered her prayer because the son she conceived was Samuel. And Samuel would be one of the key figures in the book of 1 Samuel that we're studying. Last week we learned that Hannah was not just a woman who prayed to God and God answered, but she was also a woman who was a woman of her word. She said that she would dedicate young Samuel to God for the rest of his life. And when he was weaned, when he was no longer dependent on his mother, even though he was still long, young, she brought him to the, the tabernacle and there she dedicated him to God that he would grow up in God's house. This morning we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first 10 verses that we're going to study today, is really Hannah's victory 
song. It's Hannah's celebration for how good God had been to her. You see, you don't just celebrate when you win a Super Bowl, but you celebrate when God's been extremely good to you in your life. And that's what she does in these 10 verses. So hopefully you have your copy of God's Word. Make sure you're open to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Please stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Follow along with me as I read these verses as you keep your eyes and your copy of the text. Beginning in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He, praises, he raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Now, if you remember the first two weeks of this book, they were pretty much straight up narrative, just telling us the story of what was going on. And a lot of the book of 1 Samuel is straight up narrative. But this right here is a different kind of genre. It's a different kind of writing. It's Hebrew poetry. So this is a, maybe a different kind of study. It's a really short staccato statements with a lot packed into it and a lot of figurative language. So it might be a little difficult for as we go through this, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Let me just give you some overview of what is going on here. And I have these in your outlines. So by the way, if you're new, I'd encourage you to take out the outlines, fill those in as we go through the study together. You'll be able to gain a lot more from what we studied to get today. Number one, what's the significance of Hannah's prayer? The first thing we see is this. Hannah's prayer reveals how God loves to rescue his people. Now, in Hannah's song, even though she's ultimately thanking God for giving her a son because she was barren, didn't you notice that she didn't spend much time actually talking about that son? Didn't spend much time thanking God for that son? What she spends most of her time doing is thanking God for his character how he loves to rescue people who rely on him. God's character 
is he loves to take people who rely on him, who are facing tragedy, and turn it into victory. It doesn't matter what your wealth is. It doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter what position of power you hold in the company you work for. At the end of the day, none of that matters, folks. All that matters is your relationship with the God of the universe. Are you on good terms with him? He is the one that rescues his children. He is the one who rescues those who call out to him. And only if you have a relationship with the God of the universe can you be saved. The next thing by way of overview we see is this. Hannah's prayer will prophetically introduce us to two great kings. Now we won't see this in the middle of the prayer. We see this at the very end of the prayer. What's important about this is right at this time there is no king in Israel. There has not been a desire or a calling for a king in Israel. But here she is prophetically talking about the fact that the leaderless nation of Israel is in chaos. God will bring order in that chaos by providing a king. That king is going to be David. And in the books of First and Second Samuel, we'll see the story of David coming to power. But as you get to the very last line in verse 10, she'll also talk about God's anointed, which has to do with another king, like David, but a much greater king than David. As David is going to be the one who is going to help rescue the leaderless nation, there's another king coming further on down the road in history who will rescue leaderless lost people. And I'm guessing you can probably figure out what his name is. But we'll circle back to that when we get to the end of our study. Point C. Hannah's prayer is designed to serve as a bookend in the books of First and Second Samuel. My first week as we were studying this, I told you that actually First and Second Samuel were written as one book. They were only divided up because of length to make them more manageable originally. What we find is here at the very beginning of 1 Samuel is Hannah's prayer. But when you, and it's this poetic section, which is sort of a little bit out of place to the a normal narrative of this book. But when you go to the very end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, the first seven verses, you find David's prayer. And it's also another poetic prayer. Like Hannah's prayer comes at the beginning of this book. David's poetic prayer comes at the end of this book, and they go together sort of encapsulating this book. The things that Hannah will look forward to in her prayer, David will come around at the end and say, by the way, it was fulfilled by me. And he'll say that at the end of 2 Samuel. So that's how these things frame together. We're going to work our way uh, through her prayer. There's a lot in it. And as I said, it's really short, staccato statements. So we're going to move rather quickly and try not to get too bogged down in it. But you'll see key things that will emerge as we go through this. The prayer starts with an introduction in the first verse. It'll have a conclusion in the last verse. And then it has a whole bunch of meat and material in the middle. So let's dive right in. Introduction. In the first verse, Hannah praised God for saving his people. And she says it this way. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. 
My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah begins by saying, it says, Hannah prayed. Remember the last time she prayed? We studied this two weeks ago. It was not going well for her at all. That's when Paniah was constantly undermining her, ruining her, mocking her, destroying her. But now it's quite different. She's a very happy woman, a very joy-filled woman. And what she is telling us is, by the way, God does answer prayer. God comes to the rescue of his people. And things are very different now. And she describes her rescue in three terms. She describes the rescue in terms of her heart, her horn, and her mouth. Remember, these are poetic things. So let me unpack what these poetic things mean. The first little phrase she uses is this. My heart exalts in the Lord. You want a summary of what's going on here? It's this. Hannah loved God because God loved her. Exalt means to praise. Exalt means to celebrate. But what is she celebrating here? She's celebrating a lot more than just the fact that God gave her a son. She's celebrating the fact that the God of the universe cares about her. The God of the universe listened to her prayer. The God of the universe loves her and cares about her. I want to ask you, what really makes you happy today? Maybe it's that your team won the Super Bowl last year. That's okay. You can be happy about that. Maybe it's that you were given a promotion at work. That's okay. You can be happy about that. But what makes us happiest of all, or what should make us happiest of all, folks, is this. The God of the universe loves you. He cares about you. He hears your prayer. He's listening to your calls when you call out to him. Even when you're in times of suffering and you have tears on your face, he loves you. Even when you're in in times of celebration and you're thanking him, he loves and cares and listens to you. Not just anybody, but the one who created everything. That's something to celebrate. Make you, makes us far happier than just getting an answer to our prayer is that the God of the universe listens to us and cares about us. The next thing she says is this. My horn is exalted in the Lord. What does that mean? Essentially, Hannah loved God because God gave her victory in the face of defeat. My horn is exalted in the Lord. That's a weird statement. Well, put yourself back into Hannah's context. It's a rural context. There you have animals. And you know what animals do when they fight, when they have horns? They battle one another. And all you you deer hunters out there know what it's like when bucks go at one another during the rut. There's that buck at the end who wins. And the buck who wins keeps his horns high and he keeps his head high. But the buck who loses, what happens with him? He keeps his head down and he slinks away in defeat. And Hannah says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. God is the one who gave me victory in the battles of my life. I didn't win. 
It wasn't my strength, my ability. It was a gift from God who gave me the win. Now think about this. She was a barren woman. Could she do anything to make herself pregnant other than what she was already doing? No. It was God who gave her a child. God is the one, she says, who gives us the victory. And then she says this, my mouth derides my enemies. And it says this, Hannah loved God because God destroys the enemies of his people. My mouth derides my enemies in Hebrews means my mouth is open wide. It was used to describe what a lion would do when it would be in a battle. It would devour its enemies, completely destroy its enemies. And as I got this far in my study, I sort of paused and like, man, this is a vicious woman. I mean, I know she's just heartbroken and forlorn that Paniah was bearing children and, and she's not bearing children. And now she's talking about like a horn and a battle and God giving her victory, God destroying her enemies. I mean, yeah, she's a nasty lady. What's going on? And I think I have the answer for you. Many Bible scholars talk about it this way. This song is not just about Hannah celebrating the birth of her son, Samuel. But there's a much wider angle lens going on here. Hannah is going to represent the, book, the nation of Israel in this book. Baron Hannah was mocked and oppressed by Paniah. Leaderless Israel at this time is being mocked and oppressed by their enemies. Just as God comes to Hannah's rescue and gives her a child. In the rest of the book of First and Second Samuel, we find the story of God coming to the rescue of leaderless Israel and giving them a king who would save them from their oppression. In other words, what Hannah is saying God did for her in a small way is what God will do for the nation of Israel in a much larger way throughout the rest of this book. So Hannah's story is a little miniature story of God's rescue, which we'll see played out in a much greater way for the entire nation of Israel in the rest of this book. Now what does Israel do? God raises up a king, David, ultimately, who will enable Israel to be victorious over their enemies. You know, Israel under King David devoured and wiped out many of their enemies. This is exactly what takes place. And she finishes this first verse with this. I rejoice in your salvation. In other words, Hannah loved God because he comes to the rescue of his people. Hannah did not just see something she wanted but God answered her prayers. I thought this was interesting. You know in the Super Bowl illustration I gave you earlier, the players are celebrating that they are the ones that are victorious. But here in Hannah's song, she's not celebrating that she's victorious. She's celebrating God, isn't she? Because God is the one who gave her the victory. So she's celebrating God's greatness, not her greatness. That's the introduction. Now let's dive in. She says this, There is no one like our God. There is none holy like the Lord. 
What does this mean? God's holiness means he never makes a wrong choice or has an evil intent. He always makes the perfect choice to work out for his glory and our good. Here she talks about the holiness of God. Holiness means literally separateness. It means moral perfection. In other words, God is always making the right choices in life, always making the right timing in things. He never does anything evil. He's always perfect and always does what is right. Now, I make mistakes. You guys know that. We all sin, don't we? But God doesn't. He's holy. He is good. And everything he allows to happen to us may not be easy for us, but it's always designed to achieve our good and always designed to achieve his glory. God never makes any mistake when it comes to achieving that end. Boy, it's a good thing we can trust in his character. As many times it seems like God doesn't know what he's doing. You've had that in your life. I've had that in my life. But many times you get further on down the road and you look back and you see, actually God knew exactly what he was doing. I just didn't see it at the time. Now think of Hannah. All those years of barrenness. All those years of being without a child. Isn't that part of that what God used in a good way? To bring her to the time when she came to the tabernacle and said, God in desperation, give me a son and if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. If having a child was always easy for her, do you think she would have come to that point? Did God use the hard pain in her life in a good way in her life to achieve his good ends and good purposes? He most certainly did. Now, we move from God being holy to this. She says, there is none beside you. The God we worship, in other words, stands alone in the universe, all other gods are nothing. Not only is God holy, separate, perfect, pure, always with the right choice, the right timing, the right direction, but there's nobody like him, nobody comparable to him. Folks, many times you hear there are many different gods out there. Hannah says, absolutely not. There is only one God in the universe she says, I know him, and by the way, today we know him, and we worship him. How incredibly blessed are we? There's so many people out there, right in our own community, who do not know the one God in the universe. Yet we can read about him, we can know the truth of his character, and that he's good all the time, and that he loves his people, those who call out to him for rescue. This is what we need to hear. Next thing she says is this. There is no rock like our God. In other words, God protects his people. The image of a rock, by the way, has the idea of protection. It has the idea of security. If you're in a battle and there's this big, huge rock, what do you want to get behind? The rock, right? No arrow is going through it. No bullet is going through it. You're protected by this rock. And what she says is, God, not only are you alone in the universe, the one great one in the universe, but you're the ultimate protector in the universe. When life is falling apart, where do you go to hide? Where do you go for comfort? Where do you go for protection? You go to God, and nothing is a better protector than him in our 
life. I have a question for you now. What do you use for safety, security, and protection in your life right now? Do you think it's the size of your bank account? Do you think it's the brightness of your intellect? Do you think it's the security of your job? Is that where you find comfort and protection in times of trouble? Folks, all of those things can go away in a heartbeat. The one sure protector for us is the God who loves us. He's the wonderful rock of protection. And she continues to talk more about God's character and what he's like. She says, there is nothing our God does not know. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God is fully aware of every plot that is hatched in darkness. God knows every thought in every mind. God knows every word before we speak it. God knows every goal we have in life. And yes, God knows the suffering and he knows the tears we have in life. God knows all there is to know about us and about what is happening in our world. Now, isn't that comforting? That nothing is taking God by surprise. Nothing is ruining his almighty plans and purposes in your life. And here's what I love, folks. We know because there's only one God in the universe. He's holy. His choices are always good, always wise, always best towards his children. We know that he always has a response that is calculated by his infinite wisdom to every situation we face. God knows the past completely and fully, the present completely and fully, and the future completely and fully, and he responds in a way that is good which is why Paul can write this famous verse we've read so many times in our New Testament. Romans 8, 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a wonderful promise that if you love God and that if you know God, the all-wise all-knowing God of the universe who loves you and cares about you promises to work all things in your life together for good. It doesn't say easy, but it says for our good. That, my friends, is an incredible comfort. So what we find here is what Hannah is celebrating is not so much that God has given her a son, but God's character. That we have a trustworthy God a God who loves us, a God who knows us, a God who will always make what is a good and wise choice when it comes to us. This is the God we worship. I like the way Jeremiah says this. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You want to boast about something? Better than boasting about the good things God has done for you, boast in the fact that you know God and his character. And knowing his character and who he is is what to be really grateful about. 
Now, folks, when we come to church, oftentimes we say, I just want to get something out of church. I want to get something out of what the pastor says. And it's always good to, you know, get a little knife, uh, knife, life nugget, you know, a little practical thing you can learn for life out of a Sunday sermon. That's good. But you know what's even better to get out of a Sunday sermon? That you start to understand God's character better. You start to know what he's actually like. What he actually feels about you. How much he's actually sacrificed to save you. And what he's done for you. And his plans for you are good. And his power is all-knowing, all-wise, all-strong. These are the things that are really valuable to learn. Not that little life nuggets and practical things are bad. But coming away from church and worship, understanding God's character, that, my friends, is far better. Because when we know God's character, when life falls apart around us, we will still trust him. Because we know he's wise, we know he's good, we know he loves us, and he's got a good plan. And he's going to protect us. Well, she, can, she continues and says this, Our God loves to save the powerless who trust in him by giving victory in the face of defeat. What she's going to do is take this one particular aspect of God's character, now that she's introduced him, and she's going to talk about this in a number of ways. The fact that our God loves to save the weak and powerless who trust in him. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. God loves to save those who trust in him. He loves to give victory in the face of defeat. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, isn't this a story of like almost every Bible story where God's people have a, their life is falling apart. They call out to God and God comes to their rescue. Let's take Israel. Remember when they went into Egypt? Forced to make bricks without straw forced to throw their male children in the Nile River. They call out to God, and doesn't he rescue them by sending a deliverer in Moses and the plagues? And God is the one who brings them out of Egypt, not in their own strength, but God is the one who comes to their rescue when they call out to him. Abraham, not able to conceive a child with Sarah, way past childbearing years, and they God comes to the rescue again. This is story after story after story. This is the way God works. He allows his children to go into hard times, and God's children call out to him, and he loves to rescue them. That's what happened in Hannah's life, and that will happen, I expect, in our life. Has it happened in your life? Let's flip on the other side. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Our security for the future, by the way, does not come from our prosperity, but from God. So, folks, who gives us our wealth? Who has given you the resources you have in your bank account? Is it you? Is it your strength? Is it your wisdom? Or is it God who put you in the right place at the right time and gave you the right blessings so you can have your wealth, so you could earn your wealth, so you could actually give more credit and glory to him? 
Our security does not come from our financial bank account. It comes from God. Then she, he, she says this. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Here's the point. God can reverse any situation no matter how hopeless it looks. And here's where it gets a little complicated. Last week, I showed you at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2 that it says that Hannah was not just blessed with having Samuel as a son when she was barren, but she goes on to have other sons and daughters. In fact, you add it up, she has a total of six children. But here it says the barren is born seven. Like the numbers don't match. What's happening? You think it would be sort of silly to like get them wrong, like just only verses apart? Here's what the Bible scholars think is going on, and I think they're probably right. Remember, this little section is Hebrew poetry. As you've seen, many of these things are spoken in a figurative way. Remember the horn stuff? and It's all figurative. Numbers can be spoken in a figurative way and have a figurative meaning. It doesn't say she is born seven children. It's she's born seven. Do you know anything about the number seven in the Bible? It's used as a term of completeness. It's a used in a term of fullness. So the one who doesn't have any children, there's her situation completely reversed, and she can have a house full of children. But those who have a house full of children could be reversed too, and they could end up forlorn at the end of the day. In other words, God loves to reverse the situation of his people. It does not matter how hopeless it is. That's what he specializes in doing. It's in Bible story after Bible story after Bible story. But isn't that also the gospel story? Isn't that the good news that we trust in? That you and I are sinners by nature and by choice. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That we deserve the lake of fire. That is a true, just, and fair response to our sin. But God loves us. He sent his own son, Jesus, to rescue us, to be the king that we desperately needed. He died in our place for our sin on the cross. He offers to save us if we would simply turn and trust in him and place our faith in him to be saved. And folks, it's a great reversal because we go from deserving the lake of fire to what the Bible says is we become the most blessed beings in the entire universe. Adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. For all of eternity, we are a grand display of God's grace turned on maximum display. If you know Jesus today, there will never be more grace and kindness and love displayed in the universe in an undeserved way by God than on you and me. God loves to save those who call out to him. And he loves to create a great reversal is what she's saying in an amazing, amazing way. It's not just Hannah's story, but folks, that's our story through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, 
the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which is the grave, by the way, and raises up. In other words, death is not the end. God can raise people from death to life. Sometimes we hear that you don't see the resurrection in the Old Testament. Actually, you do, right here. She says, you want to see a great reversal? This is how amazing and powerful our God is. He can take dead people and bring them back to life, which is the good news of the gospel. Because while we die and our bodies go in the grave and our spirits go home to be with Jesus in heaven, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he will resurrect from the dead. Our very self-same bodies will come back to life just like Jesus Christ's body came back to life. And our bodies will be filled with strength and power and will live forever just like Jesus' resurrected body. That's a great reversal. But that's what God loves to do. That's his character. We see this here in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. In other words, God gives poverty and prosperity. Our financial status is determined by God. Verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. See this great reversal theme? God rescues the hopeless. And I put down here, think of Joseph in Egypt. Isn't that the story of Joseph? Sold into slavery by his brothers. Ends up working in Potiphar's house. Looks like things are going well. Mrs. Potiphar tries to seduce him. He does the right thing. And it ends up looking like he did the wrong thing. He gets thrown in the dungeon. But remember, God is large and in charge. He knows everything that's going on. He always has a good plan for his people. He doesn't ever make any mistakes. No matter how hopeless it looks, it's not hopeless because the God who loves you, the God who hears your prayers is in charge. And he loves great reversals. And that's exactly what he did for Joseph. In one day, he went from being in the dungeon to the throne room when he was, God enabled him to interpret Pharaoh's dream. That's what he does. Verse 8, for the pillars of the Lord, pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. In other words, God doesn't just control what happens in the world. He suspends the earth in space. She's trying to stretch all this out now. You think God's really big? And he just controls what happens in your life and on this earth. No, he controls the earth itself. Now, obviously, she doesn't know all about outer space and she didn't have a telescope, but you got the idea here. God is the one who makes sure our planet does not get too close to the sun so we burn up. And he's the one who makes sure we don't get too far away from the sun so we freeze. He's the one who has put the planets in the exact perfect orbit for life, all held in tension with one another. By the way, he's the one who's going to make sure that we don't destroy ourselves with greenhouse gases. He's the one who will make sure that the earth continues to sustain until Jesus Christ returns. That's, he's in charge. And now we get to the end. He says, she says this, This is what we know about God. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The God who controls everything, get this, 
promises to protect those who love and follow him. What matters in this life, folks, is not our wealth. It's not our connections. It's not our status. It's our relationship with God. He is the one who promises to protect those who love and follow him. Do you know him? Is he working for you? Or is he working against you? Let's see what it says about those who don't know him. Our God will send his king to rescue his people is the, is the point. But in the beginning it says this, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. It doesn't matter how strong you are. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In other words, It doesn't matter how powerful or protected people are in life. God will judge his enemies, breaking them to pieces. The one thing that we don't want to be is an enemy of God in this life. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've turned to him and asked for him to rescue you, the good news is, is he promises he will do that. As she says, God will protect his people. And then we see this little line at the end. Remember I talked to you about those two kings that she predicts? Here they are. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. These are prophetically spoken. When she wrote this, there were no kings in Israel. Kingship wasn't even talked about in Israel. And all of a sudden she gets to the line, the last line and says, you know what? God is going to give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And we've already seen the horn thing. Remember, that's prophetic, or that's uh, poetic. He's going to give victory to his anointed one. Now, what are these two talking about? I put these in your outlines for you. Hannah prophetically promised that God would provide a king to rescue Israel and destroy their enemies. That's he would exalt his king. That king was David. Remember, we get to the end of 2 Samuel, and David sees himself as the fulfillment of what Hannah predicted. But what about this last line? He will exalt the horn of his anointed. What's that going on? Hannah prophetically promised God would provide his anointed one, which, by the way, in Hebrew is the Messiah. You translate that into Greek, it's the Christ who would be a king to rescue his people. That king is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate king that God would provide to provide the ultimate rescue to his people and to create the ultimate reversal in our lives. Going from tragedy to victory. And just to prove that to you, I put this last point. When Mary wrote a song celebrating Jesus' birth in the New Testament, and there's the reference, Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55, when you look at that song, you find it's eerily similar to Hannah's song of praise about Samuel's birth that we just studied in the Old Testament. In other words, Mary realized that her son was the fulfillment and the completion 
of what Hannah spoke about in the Old Testament, where God raised the horn of his anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Two quick conclusion points for you. One, are you following God for what he gives to you or for who he is? One of the things we saw is that Hannah is not praising God because God gave her a child, but she is praising God for who he is and his character is trustworthy. Secondly, we know this. This is another theme in here. God loves to rescue those who trust in him, bringing them from hopelessness to victory. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning to rescue you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this poetic song of Hannah here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Thank you for what it tell, she speaks about when it comes to your character. That God, you are all-knowing. You are all-wise. You're holy. You always make the good choice, the right choice. That you care about us. You listen to our prayers. And you love, you love to rescue us when we call out to you. Well, that doesn't mean you take away all of our problems. Many times we'll be suffering for long periods of time, like Hannah was desperately wanting a child. But we know that when we call out to you, you will rescue us. That may not be always be in this life, but we know for sure that you have provided the greatest rescue of all through your greatest king of all, your own son, Jesus. And that you will promise to rescue us by making us into new creations in this life when we call out to you, and that we would live forever with you, Jesus, in heaven. And we don't deserve any of it. You are so incredibly good to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.